Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. Today, we are talking about something that everyone kind of has some um, relevance to, which is melanoma, right? Very scary. And yet the treatments for melanoma have changed hugely in the last 10 to 15 years. There is nobody else that I could be more excited to have with us today other than Dr. Keith Flaherty himself. Keith, thank you for being here. And please tell us about yourself. I saw you almost, I almost used the term uh, like an old castle in mid-century because there's ivy all over it. And I know you were <laughs> at UPenn and Harvard and Mass General now. I'm just, I'm beyond starstruck to have you. Yeah, thanks, Sanjay. It's a pleasure to uh, talk with you today. Um, yeah, so my background um, is uh, in oncology now is uh, 22 years almost. Um, that's when I you know, finished my medical training up to uh, uh, my oncology training, which is a medical oncology fellowship. And then um, I did that at University of Pennsylvania, and I stayed at University of Pennsylvania for seven subsequent years, so nine years in total for the first um, stint of my career. Uh, in terms of doing research, which you know we'll touch on at some point, um, I, I you know I, re I refer to that as the decade of the 2000s, um, not because that was the decade that I was at University of Pennsylvania, because but more because that was the that was the first roughly half of my career where we still really had no effective therapies. I mean, we're going to unpack that I think a little bit in our discussion, but the turning point um, came you know roughly around 2010. Um, and it was in 2009, actually, when I uh, made the transition to Mass General Hospital, which is uh, under the Harvard Medical School umbrella and have been there now for 12 years. And uh, throughout, I mean, basically, um, as a medical oncologist, my, my primary interest going into the field was um, to really try to understand cancer biology from the perspective of developing new therapies. And my really um, poorly developed insight uh, coming out of medical training in the decade of the 90s was that if there was any disease state for which molecular insights were accumulating most rapidly, it was cancer. And so, um, you know, the term that we use in the sort of scientific uh, community is molecular biology, right, which is really, you know, when we use that term, what we mostly mean is decoding the genome um, of, of either disease or healthy tissue, doesn't you know, so much matter. Um, but molecular biology tools were really brought to bear in cancer, first and foremost. Um, it was cancer researchers who were the ones who were, in many instances, um, developing, if not developing, then at least applying those tools uh, in the earliest instance. And so what that meant was in the decade of the 90s, there was just this massive swell of um, new insights in terms of what I'll call the genetic architecture of cancer. And, and my naive insight coming out of my medical training years was that, well, this is a, a building wave and the wave's going to break. Like at some point, these insights are going to translate uh, into medicine and I want to be a part of that. Um, so that's how I, uh, you know, kind of approached the field. And I, I chose to focus on melanoma, um, you know, largely because so few therapies existed. I mean, it was, it was such a, a, a vast unmet need, an aggressive cancer, certainly when it, you know, um, had spread internally. Uh, very aggressive cancer uh, with, you know, hardly anything to point to in terms of effective therapy. And it was one of those areas where I felt like um, molecular insights were really accumulating um, substantially, which obviously we can unpack a bit. And to your point, and that's something that's very important for everyone to understand, is that cancers become cancers by taking tools that all of our regular cells have. And then what have they done to make that tool all of a sudden 
just make this cell, you know, go unregulated and grow, right? So if you have a bunch of tools to build a house and you're building houses your whole life, a cancer will take and manipulate those tools to say, well, if there's a code, if there's an HOA in this neighborhood, I'm just going to grow this huge, you know, you know, house and continue to grow all over everybody and take over the entire neighborhood. And that's what cancer is. And when you're unpacking it, what you're looking for is, what did they do? Did they all of a sudden get a whole bunch more hammers? Did they all of a sudden just like you know, lumber shipments? What is it that I can attack, that I can stop so that suddenly it does not have the ability to grow and in an ideal world actually get smaller and be completely restricted and unable to proliferate? Yeah. Well, let me, let me just uh, add a little bit to your uh, your starting point here, because I would, what I would say using your kind of architecture analogy is um, think of it this way, that every cell in the body um, has the same blueprint, has the entire blueprint right. for every other cell in the body. OK, right. but there's no cell in the body that's meant to have all functions. Right. I mean, even even what we refer to as stem cells, their their job is just to spawn you know, kind of the next, uh, you know, uh, lineage, if you will, of cells, but they themselves will actually, you know, circle back, if you will, uh, remain stem cells. But anyway, let, let me put it this way. A melanocyte, a pigment producing cell in the skin, which is what gives rise to melanoma, um, and a cell that lines the lung epithelia that's involved in gas exchange, um, or, a, you know, a cell, you know, a cardiac myocyte, a cardiac muscle cell, um, every one of those cells has the entire blueprint in them, the same genetic code, right? But they're not supposed to be reading that blueprint. <laughs> that, right? They're supposed to be reading one small part of it, right? So imagine right. that you have a, you know, the architecture firm has the blueprint for the entire body and its entire cellular composition. But when they're hiring contractors to build individual houses, right, in, in the neighborhood slash the city, uh, you know, they, they hand them the portion that they need, right, basically, exactly. right? They, and they read that part. And that's the part that I think really wasn't in view in the beginning of my career, this notion that really what's happening um, is through the accumulation of genetic alterations as the kind of fundamental component of how cancer becomes, you know, um, capable of accessing, I think what you referred to, and I like, I like this analogy too, the toolbox, right. I mean, like, like, you know, about accessing what I was just referring to as the blueprint, like figuring out basically a melanocyte, just to get, you know, stick with that example, it migrates from the same cell population that form uh, the neural tissues, I mean, brain, brain cells uh, and other components of the neural system. Um, so the same sort of cells of origin, um, they, they migrate away from where the brain and the, and the nervous system are established, and they populate then this you know, layer of the skin, uh, the, the bottom of the epidermis, or the base of the epidermis, as we call it, and they stay there, right, lifelong. And they're very long-lived cells, they're very hardy, long-lived cells. Um, they're not supposed to travel, right? That so that so talk about like a component of the blueprint. The blueprint they're not they're not supposed to have access to that part of the blueprint. And you might say, well, what cells in the body travel? I mean, beyond development, when a lot of cells are traveling, you, you know, readily think of well, immune cells. I mean, immune cells travel all around the body, right? They they go in and out of tissues. They can. There's like almost no place they can't go. Um, and so myeloma cells, and for that matter, lung cancer cells and colon cancer cells, for cancers to travel nearly all of them have to start reading a component of the blueprint that is, is, was not, you know, supposed to be open to them, basically. Right. So think of this as, a, as, as kind of a crosstalk between mutations, genetic alterations, which are the fundamental building block, if you will, that results in an opening of this blueprint. And that's when we talk, and as we'll, I think, get to, um, when we talk about escaping immune recognition, escaping the immune system, so, you know, kind of immune evasion biology, 
this is another piece that, I mean, I would say really only in the past 10 years have we really learned about how it is that cancers build themselves um, using building blocks that allow them to escape the immune system. They have to do it. I mean, in other words, like, if they became sufficiently different from normal cells through mutations, right, they become increasingly likely, not 100% certain, but over time, more and more likely to be seen by the immune system. And so having mechanisms to, to basically escape surveillance are critical. And then you might ask, well, is that, are there cells in the body that actually know how to do that, that actually know how to shut down branches of the immune system? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> there are immune privilege sites and there are immune cells that shut down other immune cells. So that's another part of the blueprint. Right. I think, you know, and I've said this before, I think we don't pat ourselves on the back, you know, and thank our immune systems enough because throughout your lifetime, you are, your immune system is doing its job. You know, it's, it's going in and says, hey, you're not doing what you're supposed to. You're out of order. You're out of line. You know, you get chopped, you get laid off. And that's, that's how these cells are being destroyed. And every now and then, somehow they, a cancer cell or even a precancer cell gets tools to all of a sudden behave in a way it's not supposed to and had the ability to not be seen, almost like a Harry Potter cloak of sorts. Yep. So to understand this correctly, and so anyone listening understands, a melanocyte in and of itself has done something it's not supposed to do. Is that correct? Because it's already left that neural area and gone somewhere where it's not supposed to be? Well, uh I would say that it takes um, a certain, um, well, yeah, find, having the, the being programmed to have the zip code uh, to, you know, to get to the base of the epidermis, you know, the kind of home of melanocytes, um, you know, that's a developmental process. I mean, so I, I mentioned that briefly in passing that in development, cells are doing right. lots of things that they're going to stop doing, right. um, you know, once they, you know, differentiate and become kind of the, the their adult, you know, version, if you will. Right. Um, and that's, uh, that's you know, very much true of melanocytes. They they recover that ability. So in other words, they 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 you know basically become capable um, of traveling again. Um, and actually, uh, maybe an important point to mention, uh, just kind of before I you know I forget about it, you know melanomas um, you know that, that spread internally and become life threatening. They are one of the most common causes of brain metastases, so brain involvement um, via spread. So breast cancer and lung cancer are the other two major cancer forms that, that um, will spread to the brain uh, commonly. Well, mel advanced melanoma, metastatic melanoma, um, is far less common than, than breast cancer and lung cancer, far right. less common, but it gets to the brain very commonly, um, right? And it just, it, it, it's a kind of a somewhat unanswered puzzle in our field to understand, well, is this because they came from the wow, same cell population? ET yeah, kind of thing. That sounds exactly, yeah. exactly. That they know how to thrive in that environment. They know how to operate in that environment in a way that they used to know how to do in their primordial state. Right. Like they're indigenous, like that's where their roots are. And therefore, you know, they have a proclivity to want to go back to the place that they are that's came it. from. That's a very interesting concept. Now, talking about immune, you know, uh, surveillance or, or escaping immunity, this is what I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, what I was taught is, you know, really early on, I think the melanoma was first kind of suspected in the 1700s or 1800s, but it got to a point where people started observing that if you have a melanoma lesion, some kind of treatment was actually to rake it or scrape it just to try to, not to cut it off, but to really inflame it. And that there were responses where you saw all of a sudden this lesion or potentially this cancer actually regress. Why? Because 
you know, in theory, you're literally stimulating inflammation and all of your immune cells to go and do something about it. And, this, and we're talking obviously like forever ago, but was that something that was seen in history? It's like, I don't know why, but when I scrape this thing and they can make it all angry, it seems to do better. Yeah, no, that's true. That is that is in the in the deep history. Um, melanoma is, you know, as I'm sure um, nearly everyone who's listening to this um, discussion knows, is you know, it's a superficial cancer in its primary form. In nearly all cases, there are these kind of somewhat rare, more internal forms, if you will, that you know, where melanomas start there. But leave those aside. In general, it's superficial. Um, and of course, there are other skin cancers that are superficial. But melanoma, just to uh, remind folks that it's. Um, while it's not as common as squamous cell carcinoma and basal cell carcinoma, for example, both of those are more common than melanoma, those are much, much less likely to travel. So the metastatic potential of melanoma is just off the charts compared to those cancers. So therefore, it, it just has a, um, you know, quote unquote, pound for pound, you know, far uh, more uh, life-threatening aspect to it. In any case, um, as you say, you know, across the spectrum of, of superficial cancers, I'm, I'm, I'm probably bringing up those others because squamous cell carcinoma, for example, still to this day is treated with topical approaches that basically incite more inflammation, but where it's not just surgically removed, partly because people commonly have like, you know, many, many of these lesions over time and it right. you know, becomes almost impossible to get ahead of them or stay on top of them with surgery alone. So, so borrowing from the same concept that superficial cancers in some instances could be basically just further inflamed, if you will. Um, and that that would, you know, be enough to get the immune system to kind of tip over, you know, the problem and just, you know, like wholesale attack. Uh, and, and by that, you mean like freezing it, right? That's why you freeze, like, exactly. you know, that's what you're doing when you go into the uh, dermatologist and they're freezing, you know, a squamous cell carcinoma of the skin. Of course, squamous yes. cell can be other things. The whole reason is just to say, hey, make it really, you know, not angry, but really like calamity so that everything comes and takes care of it. That's right. And there's, I mean, this, there's a certain type, certain way or multiple ways actually of killing cells that actually make them inflammatory, make them make them more visible to the immune system. And the idea is that if you can do that at a local site, that can actually spread elsewhere. And I should just mention, even though it's it's probably not on people's radar so much when they think if, if they've heard anything about kind of the revolution in terms of therapies that are relevant for melanoma, but now also for other cancers, um, they're probably thinking of drug therapies, you know, get around the body, you know, systemic therapies, as we call them. But it turns out there's actually been this sort of mini revolution of local therapies, like tumor injected therapies, um, yeah. where basically patients might have disease beyond what can be injected, but just treating a single lesion can not only cause the immune system to vigorously attack and destroy that site, um, so no no cutting out at all, just like putting putting immunologic drugs into lesions, but can actually incite immune attack of non-injected lesions. Um, and this is something that, you know, the first, first drug that was approved for this is um, referred to as TVEC for short. It's an FDA approved yeah. drug for melanoma. Um, but that has spawned this, you know, like explosion really in terms of, um, you know, next generation strategies that are like that, um, that hopefully will ultimately be relevant for other cancers actually. Um, but you know, where, where you, you can't necessarily get a needle into every aspect of the disease, but if you can just what I sometimes call light off a stick of dynamite in one single tumor site, get the immune system to attack vigorously there, and then, you know, take the knowledge that it's gained systemically um, to attack other sites. That 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 clearly has happened, at least in a subpopulation of patients who've received TVEC, and uh, you know, mounting evidence that some 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 of the newer investigational therapies can do the same. Interesting. So, you know, as a as a spoiler alert, basically you're saying the concept is a TVEC. You don't have to go directly to the place of the cancer, sure. but just by stimulating, waking up the army and saying, hey, wake up, let's go attack this, you know, colony of, 
of cancer cells right here that remember immune cells always circulate obviously they're occurring in your blood and soft tissue all the time that that can almost just like you know nudge everybody and say hey go attack the people wearing the black mask and stuff and therefore in that circulation process you actually can end up getting people away from that lesion just because everyone's amped up and circulated and saying let's go get this bread and then they start attacking other places that's a very yeah. comforting thing because it avoids needing systemic right therapies that will kind of you know, be toxic to all of your tissues and all that. You avoid all of that with this strategy. Yep. Yeah, there's basically, there's there's two issues here. And I think maybe this this kind of previews a little bit what we'll talk about in terms of the systemically administered drugs. Uh, there's two concepts. One is that there's kind of a tipping point phenomenon. There's like a, you know, mounting a, a tumor clearing, like elimination type immune response. Um, and, and at what point do you reach that threshold, right? So just like think of just a kind of a, you know, li literally a, you know, kind of a it, it's sort of a chemistry concept of activation energy, like that you get over the hump and basically right. the immune system then can sort of take care of things. Can, can we do that most effectively, more more commonly effectively at a single site um, where we can actually um, kind of essentially manipulate the immune system in multiple ways or, at, or in a very kind of powerful way uh, at a single site? Uh, or, uh, you know, can we get there with multiple drugs systemically? Like, in other words, can we achieve the same phenomenon systemically? And to your point, let's keep an eye on both sides of the equation. It's not just a matter of getting the immune system motivated to attack the cancer. It's also to not have it attack normal parts of the body. And that's been the price we paid, not with TVEC, but with some of the other drugs that we're going to talk about. Um, that that happens, right? And, we, and so we, what we've been learning, you know, really through this process, because you mouse experiments actually didn't do a great job of, you know, kind of uh, anticipating this phenomenon. What we're learning is some of the same molecular switches that we're now targeting effectively um, with FDA approved drugs. These same molecular switches are actually part of how the immune system in its surveillance function, which you were mentioning, like it's doing all day, every day, all day, every day, it actually has to differentiate between self and non-self. That's actually a constant problem or process. And it turns out that there are gas pedals and brakes, but but some of those breaks on the immune cells are there to stop it from attacking normal tissues. And we've learned that by directly having drugs that like very exquisitely only interfere with that one break. That's all they do. And while they can have positive effects on the cancer, they can actually unleash the immune system against normal parts of the body. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to pull the rug now from underneath both of us and introduce that concept. What we are talking about now is saying, OK, there are cancers that have escaped their immune system and have that Harry Potter cloak or whatever, or a stop sign that says, don't attack me, immune system. We discovered what's called immune therapy now, where we can actually knock off those stop signs or bind them up so they are no longer applying as the way that the cancer can escape surveillance. And basically, even though it's systemic therapy, we're liberating our immune cells and our lymphocytes to all of a sudden it's like I'm blind and I can see again. And suddenly they're not being told that they can't attack this cell. And then boom, they go and they're doing the job that they were supposed that they've been doing their whole lives, but somehow have been tricked. And that trick has been basically taken from under the or taken away from them so they can go attack that cancer again. And we have two stop signs now, right? Or or we've neutralized two stop signs that tumors have. CTLA-4, right? Everyone's heard that, and PD-1 or PDL one Those are the two main ones we attack in melanoma. Right, exactly. And, and then uh, coming to a theater near you soon is LAG-3. That's the third target in oh. the same same category. A positive phase three trial was reported now almost a year ago 
Um, and the FDA has been reviewing that data and we anticipate, well, they've said they're going to make a decision within the coming weeks, actually, um, as a firm sort of deadline. And given that the fact that there was a phase three trial that was positive for its primary endpoint, we expect that'll be, uh, that's a, that's a common, in melanoma, that's a combination of a PD-1 antibody plus a LAG3 antibody versus PD-1 antibody alone. Um, and we can unpack that a little bit. So now, now, I mean, we have, I mean, leave aside the FDA approval for a moment, you know, we, um, hope and think that that will come, but. But more to the point is just the evidence is there. I mean, a positive phase three trial. So we have three kind of validated um, levers, if you will. But I actually, they're all in the they're all in the brake family. And the gas pedal and brake analogy, they're uh -huh. all on the brake side. Um, but I just want to mention as we dive into this, that like people shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this immune evasion biology, um, it, we really we, we have every reason to believe it starts with the tumor cells. <laughs> the tumor cells are are the thing that are different, genetically different um, than normal cells in the body. And to be able to persist and thrive ultimately as tumor cells, um, some of them, and melanoma is a, is, a, is a fabulous example of this, they, they must figure out how to cloak themselves from the immune system. There's a lot to see there is what I'll, you know, I'll get into uh, as we uh, kind of unravel this story a little bit. Um, so anyway, just think about it this way. You have tumor cells um, and, and, and within the tumor cells, they have elaborated mechanisms to cloak themselves or, 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 or defend themselves against the immune system. There's actually a kind of a variety of those mechanisms. So call those tumor cell intrinsic immune evasion mechanisms. We haven't yet figured out how to topple any of those yet, but that's a big area of research right now. So like, look at, you know, over the next five and 10 years, expect that progress will be made there. I'll just very briefly say that then adjacent to that, you've got before the immune cells, you've got other cells in the so-called microenvironment, you know, in the, in the environment of the tumor that are not tumor cells, and not immune cells. They get co-opted. They, they yeah. get co-opted in by the tumor cells, right? So they bring them in for various reasons, but but we have a lot of reason to believe, based on translational data, laboratory you know based data, um, that actually one of the functions they're doing is participating in this cloaking process. So and and that's another area where again, stay tuned um, because there's multiple approaches that are being developed now. You know from preclinical now to become investigational therapies, trying to disrupt that axis and basically take off the mask. The category so saying, that- so I'm, To understand this correctly, you're saying that the tumor microenvironment essentially are cells that are not tumor cells, or your, your cells, but they've been yeah. literally hijacked or taken hostage yes. and used to basically help or enable this neoplastic or cancerous process of the cancer in right. That's, That's correct. Wild. Sometimes even feeding tumor cells directly what they want in terms of growth factors and sort of you know, growth signals, if you will, and anti-death signals oh and the like. But, but, actually, but actually, like fibroblasts are just a, a nice example. They're all yeah, over yeah. the body. But certain cancers recruit in tons of them. Mm -hmm. And we have more and more evidence to suggest, that suggests that actually part of the function that they're playing is this cloaking mechanism as it pertains to the immune system. But anyway, I think that's but, why pancreatic is so hard to treat is because exactly, they really right. are the gurus of monopolizing that environment. And we have it precisely. I mean, the, the ratio of fibroblast to cancer cells is actually off the charts in that instance. We haven't proven because we don't have fibroblast effective cancer fibroblast directed treatments yet. There's some in the works, but not, nothing yet, you know, uh, nearing the finish line. And the point then being that, you know, once we ag have an example of that, like a drug that actually targets that population, and we see, you know, inrush of immune cells and potentially the ability to combine with things like PD-1 and, you know, kind of clear tumors away. Well, then we'll have validation that, that you know, all this, um, you know, kind of model system evidence is, is uh, relevant to humans. But the, but the models certainly suggest that. Anyway, I'm just, I'm just quickly kind of hitting those yeah, what I call compartments because what we're going to be focusing on are the immune cells themselves, like drugs that target gas pedals and brakes 
on immune cells and really almost, well, I would actually go further and say just about all the success so far in melanoma and other cancers um, in terms of immunotherapy, drug immunotherapy advance has been focused on T cells. The, the, the final cell population in the cascade of immune recognition and response, the ones that do the killing. Um, that's, it's, it's figuring out the gas pedals and brakes on those cells and figuring out how to drug those. That's been, you know, when people have read anything, I mean, whether it's, you know, New, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, or New England Journal of Medicine, um, when they hear about immunotherapy revolution, that's what they're reading about really is these T cell gas pedal slash brake uh, directed drugs. Right. And there's one example of that. If anyone's heard the term CAR T therapy, uh-huh. that's, you know, used in blood cancers, um, lymphoma and recently leukemia. What they're doing is they're literally taking out your lymphocytes, right? T therapy, CAR T. And then they take a piece of like the tumor and say, hey, this is your blueprint to say, go look for this guy. I know you're doing your job, you're doing great, but let me give you a little help. Mm-hmm. And they ma- and manufacture these lymphocytes, give them back to you. And suddenly these kind of like, almost like bionic now, you know, lymphocytes are, can hone in and, and, and have amazing responses in these blood cancers. Yep. But the interesting thing about melanoma and, you know, you always think about chemotherapy with cancer treatment, but we've never classically had any success with mm-hmm. just the chemotherapy part. You don't use carboplatinum and cisplatinum and taxol and all these things you may or may not have heard with people getting other cancer types. And in fact, in melanoma, just to give you an idea of how important immunity and immune cells are, we actually injected and still do in some places in the country, high levels of the signal that your body gives off when it's under like really bad infection or it's all calamity, you're in the ICU, it's called IL-2, interleukin. All of our interleukins say, ah, fever, uh, blood bi- vessel dilation. I mean, it's just, it's chaos. And we inject them in high doses with people that have, you know, metastatic melanoma. And sure enough, I mean, there are some cases where you get complete responses. Yep. But I hope anyone hearing that, listening, can really appreciate how much that immune system plays in and how people still do that in the country. And yep. that's why it's, it's, that's why the immune focus has really been well known for a while. Yep. But fortunately, everything changed in melanoma. Like, in the post 2000 era. Before that, if you had stage four melanoma, I mean, it was terrifying. It's like mm-hmm. a glioblastoma today. Mm-hmm. And then came immune therapy. Those mm-hmm. breaks, those T lymphocytes, those stop signs that changed the game. And now suddenly I can tell patients, you have about a 50% chance, correct me if I'm wrong, on responding to first line, which I know if you're listening to this, probably like 50% chance doesn't sound great at all. But honestly, like for something that was so scary, 50% mm-hmm. is huge. And especially if you do respond, you could have up to a year and a half, two years, and I shouldn't say this, and you're probably going to slap me on the wrist, but potentially, you know, indefinitely, yeah. have a response and usually a very robust one, and that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, the, 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 yeah, the durability of these responses is is really off the charts compared to any of our well standards for that we set for chemotherapy drugs uh, for various cancer types, um, and and frankly, you know, even the targeted therapies. I mean, some of the targeted therapies have been impactful in a way that's you know, roughly in this in this realm but basically let me put it this way if you mount an anti-tumor response that actually clears up evidence of the disease on scans in a patient who has metastatic disease and half the likelihood half they're half going to be alive i'm sorry and half of the patients will they'll mount with the standard first line immune therapy about 40 50 percent will mount we'll have we'll have a partial response or greater but 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 i'm talking about the greater part so in other right. words the patients who have complete or near complete responses so their scans normalize those patients are exceedingly likely greater than 90 percent likely 
to live five, 10 years and counting, right? So we, like, we still, I mean, we're super cautious about using the word cure in this situation, but those patients are off therapy, um, you know, for years by the time five and 10 years are coming along. Um, and you, you know, general practice is to continue watching them closely. That's still what we do, uh, at least presently. Um, by, by closely, I mean every six months, sometimes you know, out to every every 12 months, but keeping an eye for the possibility that there could be hibernating cells. But my point is these are remarkably durable responses and even partial responses. So even when there's still something left on the scans, um, those typically last years. I mean, right, so we're talking, you know, going from, you know, 10% response rates that were fairly transient with all the drugs that had been used for other cancer types, where we, we barely even considered those standard treatments. I mean, the FDA really, you know, essentially said to us in the melanoma field, look, if you've got a new therapy in a clinical trial, you know, and you're moving on to phase three trial and, and you're thinking, what should I compare it to? Uh, you can compare it to these 10% response rate chemo drugs or not. In other words, you know, like literally placebo control, you know, in the decade of the 2000s, let's say up, up to that late, um, was considered still to be, you know, uh, quote unquote, scientifically appropriate, although obviously challenging to contemplate for a doc, from a doctor and patient perspective. In any case, that's how close to zero we were. And so we, we've taken this huge leap. So, I mean, let me just like put some numbers on it just so people have a kind of yeah. way of thinking about this kind of quantum step here. So PD-1 monotherapy, that's like, that, that's the big uh, moment um, in the melanoma field, but we can you know, chat if you like about, you know, some of the adjacent areas where it's equally impactful. Um, like in melanoma, uh, because there's some common threads there as to why. 40% um, response rate in the in the treatment naive metastatic setting with PD-1 monotherapy. Um, you know, ballpark 5% legitimately concerning, you know, severe autoimmune toxicity risk, but 40% response rate, and those responses are durable. But like I said, you know, let's say somewhere in the realm of 15 to 20% of patients are apparently permanent, okay, of the, of the original <laughs> That's, that's insane. It's, it's it's astounding. I mean, it's, it's absolutely one, astounding. So we didn't we didn't know that you know drug with just an immune just an immune system liberator basically. Yes, that's yes. just wild. Where 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 frankly, I mean, you know, as I the general rule of thumb that I give to most of my patients is, um, you know, sixty percent of patients actually don't notice anything, don't have side effects at all. Oh, yeah, that's what I, I mean, always say. I mean, I mean like, nothing. Now, now, I'm like, it, most it, don't have a thing. Right. In many other cancers, uh, PD one antibodies are given with other treatments, as you well know, more common cancers. Um, chemo, classical chemotherapy drugs is a good example, and those drugs obviously do have a, a bit of a burden in terms of toxicity. But, but melanoma, that's not the case because chemotherapy drugs are so weak. We we skipped essentially right over those, and PD one antibody monotherapy. Um, I mean, it was actually compared to head to head chemotherapy in one large phase three trial, uh, but it just you know blew it away as a comparator. And so PD one monotherapy in the frontline setting that that in in the year two, 2014 that became our kind of bedrock standard. Now interestingly, CTLA four ipilimumab is the one marketed drug in that class. Um, that came before. I mean, that was FDA approved in 2011 in melanoma as the first indication, and and still to this day the only cancer for which there's single agent evidence of sufficient efficacy to lead to FDA approval, that has a 10% response rate. Now, again, those turn out to be inordinately durable, right? So right. you'd say, well, 10% response rate, like what was the FDA thinking? Well, but these responses are like the, the majority, the vast majority of them are permanent, okay? Right. So, and, and a phase three trial that, you know, head to head against a comparator demonstrated that patients live longer, right? So like, there was just no question, the FDA, like that's kind of their ultimate question is if you can do that, um, you know, you've it's got a like one in 10 chance of living or, or passing away, unfortunately. For sure. So, so I mean, obviously, you can imagine it would have been more challenging for CTLA-4 antibodies to make it to market 
if PD one already existed, but they, but PD one wasn't there yet. Right. It was just in phase one um, uh, slash two at the time. So any case, so CTLA four came first with its ten percent response rate. Then three years later, by FDA approval dates, I'm giving you, um, three years later comes PD one with its forty percent response rate. So like, bam, like big jump up. Immediately, um, studies are done to combine the two. And now you start to see 55% response rates when you combine the two together. And again, those you know follow the same rules in terms of uh, you know typically being durable and you know larger and larger portion being long term, as in five plus years durable. Now the problem there, and this is what like precedes you know quick comments I'll make about lag three. The problem is that you know PD1 monotherapy is actually you know in general quite well tolerated slash safe with autoimmune or you know anti self toxicity being the problem, gut, liver, skin being the three common sites like graft versus host disease and transplant patients, same organ sites, mm -hmm. looks a lot the same. In fact, when you do biopsies of those sites, any case, so, so PD-1 can do that in a legitimately severe way about 5% of the time. CTLA-4, 10% response rate, about a 10, 15% chance of legitimately concerning severe toxicity, okay? You put them together, PD-1, CTLA-4 combination therapy, now you're up to about 50% concerning like legitimately concerning severe toxicity and you mean like um, grade three and above grade three or four i mean it's like a mix of above, threes yeah, and fours yeah. but but like you think something you have to do something about is, is right. my point you can't just ignore it and so um and in fact you really have to do something in, in some cases or it'll become life-threatening so what what i'm getting at is um for as exhilarating as the sort of swing up was in terms of efficacy and long-term benefit and so on the toxicity for from crossing those wires pd1 ct4 that definitely gave you know us some pause in the field and felt like, well, is there do we have other ways of skinning this cat? I mean, can we, can, you know, can we basically learn from you know these successes and you know kind of apply other gas pedal slash brake targeted drugs and get a similar result without you know the downside, right? And that's that's what PD one lag three looks like. Admittedly, admittedly, the data is not as mature, but it's a decent, oh, a large phase three trial that was conducted. Clearly shows PD one lag three better than PD one. Of course, people might be wondering, well, what about PD, PD1 lag three versus PD1 CTLA four? That other now, by the way, in 2016, FDA-approved combination. Right. But we don't have head-to-head -head data, um, but it's it's unquestionably safer than PD1 CTLA four, and it demonstrates an incremental benefit that looks, you know, ballpark similar. So, I'm being quick about it, but my point is that like we've we've made these, um, you know, inroads, um, but I just want to like really underscore that PD1 monotherapy is that was the big jump in right. efficacy. And at, at the cost of pretty modest toxicity, all things right. considered. And so, and that's what about anyone understands. The toxicities, unlike chemo, which actually works on your normal cells, may hurt the replication process, the ones that grow fastest, right? Your hair, your gut, you get nausea, you get hair loss. That's actually working on the cell. In this case, you're hyped up, or not even hyped up, but really liberated immune system. Sometimes the immune um, therapies actually knock off or block the stop signs on your normal cells. So then all yeah. the, your poor lymphocytes, can't blame them. They're doing what they're supposed to do. It's blacked up and then they go and attack it. But usually in these cases, that's when you give high dose steroids uh, because you, you know, steroids wipe away lymphocytes. That's when you, you know, you hear about, well, do we do so, you know, steroids in, in viruses or not? Is it going to make them immune compromised? That's what they're talking about. They're talking about those antibodies, B cells and, and lymphocytes. Now, one story that I hope anyone listening can appreciate that really illustrates this is I had a uh, Marine, he was like a Vietnam vet and multiple, you know, things for the country. And like I said, Marine, and I was told you never say former Marine, they're Marine for life, apparently when you're a Marine and, um, riddled, riddled with melanoma. I mean, just like bulky, everything like skin and bones. 
gave him dual immune therapy. And, you know, I, I thought it was a sarcoma, which anyone listening was a very mm -hmm. aggressive thing. And that, there would have been nothing in that case, but mm -hmm. gave him immune therapy. He did have locally in different places, his lymphocytes attacking things so much so, and I guess they're good to see the Marine. He actually had to get injections into his eyeball to, to help an immune um, reaction that was happening, you know, mm -hmm. behind near the retina. And then his thyroid, we had to replace thyroid and stuff, but by treating like locally so that we could still let this immune therapy work, yeah, yeah. complete response. The yeah. guy has literally no visible disease on his PET scan. And now with what you said, could be that way for years and years and years. Yeah. And then you support them through and, and, and you hope to not wipe away the treatment because we know for sure that stage four melanoma would have been, would have been devastating. The yeah. flip side is I had a patient that was in the ICU, 36 years old and had really bad melanoma mess in his lungs, had young children, absolutely wanted to live. And I was trying very hard to convince them to do the, you know, intubation, whatever we had to do to get the immune therapy. And I'm like, this is not like a 5% chance of working. Yeah. The are so high as young children, mom had passed away. And I wasn't able to convince, and and I think a lot of the talks basically, you know, told him, well, you have metastatic cancer, it's incurable, and then he, and then we never even got to put it in. So mm -hmm. there's some many circumstances when it's not appropriate to treat when somebody's in the in the critical care, no doubt about it. I think mm -hmm. oncology has a bad history, some justified, some not, but there are treatments like a small cell. My wife had; she's also an oncologist, and, mm -hmm. and she's put hospice. But a small cell is another one. You treat when you know things are sensitive and have an extremely high chance of working, yeah. and if you don't treat, that the chance of death is very high. Then, yeah, then well, that's I, yeah. the oncologist matters. Yeah, yeah, and, and in this case, we're, you know, we're talking about therapies. I mean, I, I, you know, non-oncologists, um, you know, generally think of all the treatments we give as impairing the immune system. Well, this is the opposite. Right. <laughs> this is impairing the immune system. So, like, you know, if someone's, you know, wrestling with issues, you know, uh, comorbid you know, or severe ones, like you said, even in the ICU, it's not that they're going to now be vulnerable to infection as a consequence of giving them these drugs. It's not the case. So. No, it's true. And, and I mean, there is a, um, I mean, I'll just a couple things to mention, you know, that we haven't touched on. One is that there is a, um, a you know, there, in some patients, there can be a point of, if you will, no return, meaning where the where cancer has evolved in such a way and the immune system engagement of it has weakened in such a way that in certain people who have really advanced um, uh, cases here, you know, focusing on melanoma, um, where the likelihood of getting a response, unfortunately, is just massively lower than it might have been, you know, had the, oh, yeah, the cancer been discovered, you know, three, four months before, let's say. Um, oh. So it, so, so there's definitely, I mean, in, in the data, it's pretty clear that, that many of these patients are not included in clinical trials. So some of what I'm reflecting is, you know, attempts in clinical practice post-approval to try to rein back in, um, you know, the most advanced cases that are found, you know, in such a late stage, but, but applied earlier and earlier, the odds of getting durable response, you know, actually you know, the good news there is that it climbs higher and higher to the point that, you know, many cases of metastatic melanoma are found, you know, with a single organ involved, lungs the most common. Um, and that's, you know, the, the response rate is extraordinarily high, 75% easily uh, for PD-1C T4 combination therapy in lung only metastatic melanoma, which is a reasonably common scenario so it's so one has to you know kind of tailor their thinking and expectations a bit based on that those circumstances but um you know that's just uh you know you know one issue oh a couple quick points also um you know one thing that's really striking you know when you give these drugs by themselves meaning again no chemotherapy or in the case of kidney cancer where um VEGF targeted therapies are given with pd1 that kind of complicates the picture that i'm about to describe in melanoma 
it's remarkably black and white in terms of who responds and who doesn't respond. I mean, it really, I mean, who gets a benefit and who doesn't respond and who doesn't. Um, I mean, it becomes clear, I mean, even within three months, certainly by six months, it's absolutely clear. Um, but my, the biology I'm getting in is really kind of fascinating here. I mean, it's really, the immune system goes right or it goes left. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really black and white. Um, and it makes it really tempting. And, you know, my group and others in the field have been hammering away on this point of just understanding, okay, if it's so black and white, what determines that? What's, uh, you know, kind of what's, what's at that fork in the road, uh, right? That, that basically isn't oh. being overcome, you know, to, to mount an effective anti-tumor response. And, you know, can we sort of, you know, really focus our attention there biologically um, to inform the development of these, you know, next generation oh. drugs that kind of, you know, start cranking up the response rates even higher. And, and just to be clear, you know, back to that point that I made about tumor cell intrinsic mechanisms and like, this is where some customization or precision medicine is going to almost certainly have to come to bear. We, we just haven't been that way in the, in this past 10 years. Um, we've been kind of treating melanoma as, all, as though it's all one thing. Now it's such a bad problem. I think, you know, it's defensible to just try, you know, throwing these therapies at everybody. Um, but now as we try to make the next um, wave of advance, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that we're going to actually have to kind of compartmentalize our thinking in terms of biological subsets. I'm so glad you said that because that's one thing that is one of the underlying, you know, reasons for this podcast is when you talked about the high toxicities with dual immune therapy and how there's a new thing, lag three, that looks like the toxicities are, are not as bad and yet the efficacy is same or greater. You cannot discover that without a trial. When you're talking about people that don't respond to the dual immune therapy, we're all excited here, 40, 50%, they're going to be durable. And then the, you know, somebody says, well, what about me? Like I, I didn't respond. Now what? That's where it's a trial. And that's what you mean by precision medicine. What are the factors that we can identify or even theorize to say, this is something that may make you not fall into the favorable side of the statistic, but we've located it. We think we have a drug for it. And let's see if we can, you know, somehow incorporate that to then give you a better response. None of this could have been out. None of this, yeah. unless people enroll in trials. And that's why, you know, I'm really proud with with Xcures. That's, uh, you know, very close in that field with precision medicine and everything. Their whole purpose, and there's multiple AI companies, but the whole purpose overall overlying is let's get the education out there that this is where cancer treatment is going. It's precise. It takes all these angels are uh, uh, targets are bursting out everywhere in every yep. disease process. And the only way to know about it is to go look for them. And then also yep. for when we try in different places in the country, in the world, don't you want to know for your mom or your dad, like there's somebody that had a similar mutation that escaped the ability for the first line therapy to work, but this other drug is working for them. We have to collaborate together as a human race and yep. with our, with our, you know, our consensus enemy cancer and be able to kind of bridge that gap as soon as possible. And the only way you know, and you of all people know, that the ridiculously amazing innovative things you're studying and understanding about melanoma, only way is to share what we know. And yeah. then, and when we know something or suspect something, have people enroll and be able to see if it works. Yeah. No, I mean, well said. And uh, no, I mean, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. You wouldn't want to be talking to me had, had it not been for clinical trial right. uh, conduct and, and patients um, enlisting and partnering um, and, uh, you know, admittedly seeking, you know, a better outcome for themselves. But so much of that energy, having, you know, walked this walk with so many patients over my career is 
is to help the next wave of patients behind them. I yeah. know that, that are, you know, not, I don't mean gender, I, I don't use the term generation that implies 25 years. No, I mean, so much sooner payoff than Five that for the now. field. It's absolutely. Um, and we've seen those kinds of, you know, rapid cycles. So in the other side of my melanoma work, um, I focus on tumor cell intrinsic targeted therapy, um, you know, BRAF targeted therapy is a thing. I've, BRAF mutations were discovered in 2002. So almost at the dawn of my career, 50% of melanomas roughly have them. So in any case, just a quick like example here, just to amplify your point, you know, it took us nine years, well, seven years from the discovery of BRAF mutations to first see responses with the, like the first bona fide BRAF inhibitor to finally be brought forward into clinical trials. So seven year, we tried other th things that we hoped would wrestle down BRAF. They didn't, in any case, and that was in clinical trials. So patients were, you know, generous participants, partners in that process. Finally, in 2009, watershed moment, you know, we enroll a cohort of patients on a phase one trial, six patients with BRAF mutant metastatic melanoma, all six of them respond. I mean, just like, bam, like all in one month, one cohort of patients. Um, it was like, we just knew we were in a different world. In any case, that the first of those drugs gets approved in 2011, same year that ipilimumab, the C-tilic antibody gets approved. Right. Three years later, a two drug regimen, BRAF inhibitor combined with a MEK inhibitor gets FDA approved. How does that happen? Well, two reasons. One is clinical trial participation, but the other is patients generously participating in research in this other domain, which is to help us understand why therapies work and don't work, right? right. So what I refer to as bedside to bench translational research, some people call that reverse translational research, translational research more generally is fine, whatever the point is, even with FDA approved therapies, we have a lot to learn. Even with PD-1 monotherapy and melanoma in, you know, approved now eight years ago, we still have a lot to learn. Um, and the point being that that there's there's a variety of ways that patients can accelerate our understanding of cancer biology and advanced therapies. And my point is that in 2010 slash 2011, like on the dawn of FDA approval of BRAF inhibitor monotherapy, patients who were participating in clinical trials were basically raising their hand saying, sure, I will undergo a tumor biopsy before I start treatment and again soon after, not to inform my own treatment, but to accelerate the research, right? And And dozens and dozens of patients did that. We learned that the pathway was being basically reactivated, not by mutations in BRAF itself, new mutations in BRAF itself, which is a story in many other oncogene-targeted right. stories, but basically there are other mechanisms, which we and my, my group and, and, and a handful of others described in this kind of shotgun rapid fire fashion because of this you know, partnership with our patients. And my point is in 2010, 2010, we were treating patients before the approval of BRAF inhibitor monotherapy by the FDA. We were already conducting a clinical trial combining two drugs. One, you know, one basically added, a MEK inhibitor added to a BRAF inhibitor to overcome that resistance. And that, that worked. And so FDA approval of the, of the two drug combination was three years after the monotherapy, right? Like wow. that cycle time was completely unprecedented to go from like one drug regimen to a two drug regimen that overcomes resistance in a substantial way, like further improving overall survival. Right. And again, it's just, I just want to amplify the point that the partnership we have with our patients, I mean, I, I sometimes take this for granted because I live in the ivory tower, you know, big, big academic medical center where so many of our patients are coming to us, uh, you know, knowing yeah. exactly that like this is a, you know, a, a central thing that we do. Um, although not, not everyone is aware of that walking in the door and we have to kind of, you know, um, you know, uh, get them up to speed on that aspect as well as simply what the treatment options are. The thing that when I was a new oncologist that made, I almost hated saying because it sounded like I didn't know what I was talking about. I kept saying 50%, 50%, 50%, right? When I explained melanoma, I'm like, 
40 to 50 percent will you know respond to immune therapy dual mm-hmm. therapy 40 to 50, like about 50 percent will have a BRAF mutation mm-hmm. and i'm like so if you progress if you're in that you know 50 60 percent that can't respond to immune therapy half of them will have a BRAF mutation and then be able to be a candidate for mm-hmm. BRAF and and plus mechan uh inhibition then after that there's not much so so it is one of it is one of the processes for whatever reason is like 50, 50, 50, 50. It's mind blowing what you just told me. I mean, the approval came, there's a big lag that happens when we know things are working in trials, but by the time they're approved yeah. and the only way we can like accommodate for that lag is to like already be looking at things, you know, in yes. multiplicity and then, and really aggregating all of our knowledge and understanding together. If you have 30 people or 30,000 different organizations trying to get their own sample studies, that's a lot slower than mm-hmm. having all 30,000 put together and then saying this works, this doesn't work, next thing, next thing. But that's what trials achieve. And there's no there's no word I can say to say how revolutionary what we're doing today is compared to what it was 15 to 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Shotgunning chemos and just like general like toxicity agents. We have identified so many things like, wow, why is this a tool in this cancer and this cancer and this cancer? Yes. And we know it goes down and makes it. We're identifying all these things that it's literally we can't wait to go attack them. And that's why combination therapy is becoming so popular because we yep. realize cancer cells are smart. I mean, yep. you, you would think that, but there's so many mechanisms that combining two, three different things that that cancer is doing is our best chance at having that wor- word durable responses. Yeah. No. I mean, well, certainly the pace of progress has has escalated uh, enormously. I mean, maybe you know, I usually kind of think in kind of five year increments because it's like it's actually if you just wind back the clock, you know, let's go to 2015, you know, 2010, 2005, 2000. There were unimaginable leaps, you know, made at each of those times when you look back of the of the previous five years, and then you go forward five more years and look back and be like, oh my, wow, even even bigger, even you know, uh, jump in terms of you know therapeutic outcome progress. I don't mean just research insights, but actual benefit to patients. The melanoma has obviously been quite exemplary of this point. So much of that is driven by technology advances. I mean, I mean, to molecular insight advances, but then like. So digital advances as well in terms of actually being able to understand multidimensional data, um, wed that you know with patient outcomes, so real kind of human data, um, and be able to kind of you know tighten the learning cycle um, enormously. Uh, you know this is let me just kind of finish with this point. I mean that you know what we're aiming for in the vast majority of cancers. I is my kind of you know typical uh, you know simple-minded way of thinking about this is for drug therapy. Okay. For drug therapy that it produces deep and durable responses, allows patients to stop therapy, right? So I'm not, not talking about for drug therapy forever. Right. I mean, you know, induction therapy, let's call it, for nearly all cancers. Now, people who obviously who are familiar with lymphoma treatment would say, oh yeah, we've been doing that, for, <laughs> been doing that for a while. Um, and I'd say, yeah, that's right, because the the old drugs, the ones, you know, the pre-2000 drugs, when mixed and matched in certain lymphomas anyway, can actually achieve what I'm describing. Yeah. But but you you can add as many you can you can put as many pre two thousand drugs together as you want in breast cancer lung cancer colon cancer prostate cancer melanoma and you will not get you know meaningful um, increment in benefit and you will get meaningful increments in toxicity so I'm talking about targeted drugs and everything right. we've talked about today is a targeted drug whether it's right. immune system targeted drug or tumor cell intrinsic targeted drug but we we need to get to match the complexity of cancer we need to get to quadruple therapy right in nearly all cancers we are you know not even to to step one. No, no. Oh, sorry. To, to step two. Uh, so let me put it this way: for about a third of cancers, we have you know locked in FDA-approved targeted therapies that are based on a molecular insight. Okay. Right. Um, that's tumor cell intrinsic. 
10% of cancer patients benefit from a PD-1 antibody in a heroic way. Okay, 10%. That's, right. Some people would say, well, that's not that big a number. I'd say, well, no, that's just one type of drug. That's a really big number. That's, wow. that's actually huge, right? So, so a third of patients have, have a you know, FDA-approved uh, you know, so-called targeted therapy at the tumor cell intrinsic level. 10% of cancer patients get this you know, big, big impact of PD-1 antibody therapy. But that leaves you the rest of cancer, right, for which we still have to find a foot in the door. We still have to find a vulnerability, a primary vulnerability that produces an effect that's like what we just talked about, you know, right. oncogene-targeted therapy or PD-1. Um, and then what I'm getting at is we've got to scale the combination. So, so when, I was, when I was saying the vast majority before, combination therapy is relevant to a quite a small percentage of cancer patients, like molecularly informed, biologically uh, grounded combination right. therapy, two-drug combination therapy, right? And I'm talking about the need to get to four drugs. So I'm just amplifying the point that we have biologic line of sight towards three and four drug combination regimens that that we can reason based on, um, you know, uh, observations or and more um, yeah. elaborate uh, laboratory research. But talk about the need for clinical trial participation and partnership. I mean, I, like we're never going to get there without, like, I would argue, doubling down on the clinical trial participation slash collaboration model. That's true. And I mean, there are people everywhere that are alive today, almost curative things that were on trials for even drugs that and regimens that failed. Like that's an important thing to know is like, you know, actually one of Mika's uh, friends, like he was on a immune therapy vaccine trial uh, for his stage four melanoma. They didn't pan out the data. It doesn't mean it didn't work completely. He actually was cured and is alive to this day. So yeah. the, the point is it's so complicated. There's a lot to understand. Even like and, and that tells you that even if trial drugs aren't approved, that there, there's obviously some mechanical thinking or observation in, in studies and research in a lab, whatever, that really do get us in the right direction. And then when you have that big hit, it happens. But I can't wait to discuss more. If we discuss even one year from today or two years from today, who knows what that conversation will sound like. I hope you're not telling me we need a dozen drugs. Hopefully we're at four and then we're good. <laughs> But um, this has just been so insightful. I hope anyone that has had a real fear and, and was sensitized about the word cancer can hear this and say, okay, it sounds like we're headed in the right direction. It sounds like there's a lot more out there than what I understand as far as cancer, chemo, hair loss, and, you know, just poison until passing away. It's just, it's, it's just so different for a lot of different, you know, uh, uh, cancer types and the cancer types matter. And then the person matters and all of that is targeted in precision therapy. We need yeah. to know about the stuff about the cancer. We need to know the stuff about you. We need to be able to isolate which of the things that are kind of the holdups on getting better responses. Okay. Mash them, crosswire them, and then one day, and I love this phrase, some experts say, we may not cure every cancer ever, but cancer may be something that we end up dying with and not die from. Yeah. Just like shingles, HIV, whatever. You take medications, you don't have flares, you pass away with it and just keep it under wraps, right? I mean, would you agree with that statement? No, I totally agree. And I mean, I think that's that, I align with that vision very much, but I just want to add one more point to your, you know, kind of um, heartening, uh, you know, kind of synthesis here, which is that, you know, it wasn't so long ago that, uh, you know, a dear colleague of mine, well-known figure in the field, um, you know, made the comment, he was not a melanoma uh, uh, physician or, you know, specialist, mm -hmm. it made the comment publicly and repeatedly um, that melanoma gave cancer a bad name. I mean, in other words, it was just one of those cancers that if you were diagnosed in its advanced form, right, that many people, you know, like were informed of the treatment options as bad as they were, as ineffective as they were, um, and chose no therapy. And, you know, and basically sort of, you know, 
and, and that was that. Um, and unfortunately, we still have a couple cancer types that are, you know, kind of in that realm, uh, right, yeah. where we just don't really, we haven't really lifted off the ground in a very meaningful way. I'm not saying that there's no treatment options even for those. But anyway, my point is that, that melanoma was certainly one of the last cancer types that anyone would have thought that scientific advances would cause this, this fundamental leapfrogging. I mean, where we just, we've had this quantum step up we're patients with far advanced and just, you know, again, what would have been just horrifically terrifying findings on scan, you get a biopsy result back and you see it's melanoma and you say, Hey, like we're back in the game. I mean, you know, we, we, exactly. I mean, in the way that people have said about lymphoma for, you know, for quite a long time. Right. Um, and so what I'm getting at is if it's possible in melanoma, I mean, I, I, I say this as a melanoma doctor, but many of my colleagues who are not melanoma specialists say this to me also. If it's possible in melanoma, then like then it's possible in every cancer, right? That 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 we will have these leapfrog moments, and and I think you know for those who've had a family member with cancer or who themselves have been diagnosed with cancer and are thinking, well, you know, I like I'm in unfortunately in the you know end of the spectrum where you know big advances haven't been made. I, I, what's going to happen? I mean, this is like I I'm certain of this over the coming you know years. Pick whatever number you want. You know, ten years certainly out to twenty years. Is we're just going to keep seeing these like big leapfrog moments happening in one cancer type or one molecular subtype of that spreads across six or eight different cancers, right? Where but where the same therapy basically you know produces that leapfrog. PD one's a bit like that, um, and so you know it's uneven, right? The progress, right? But it's but it, it's it's big and I mean really frankly kind of magnificent, you know the, the individual you know gains that have been made. That's going to keep happening and at a more accelerated rate. I mean, that's I. It's the, I think it's very very clear that the wind up for this is the technology advance that precedes therapeutic advances. Um, it's coming. What we thought were dr druggable targets are becoming druggable from you know, based on numerous types of chemistry advances. Um, the complexity with which cells can be engineered, the way in which antibodies can latch onto four things instead of just one. I mean, and and deliver payloads. I mean, chemo with it, and then exactly, and body. not just and not just chemo, but immunologic payloads on their back on their back end. I mean, it's really right. The technology advances are astounding, and and this again, it just it makes the prospect of participating in clinical trials just more and more obvious, frankly, right? Because the because of the access that one gets. Um, uh, you know, to these therapies. And there will always be, in the case of melanoma, you know, we have these very, very good treatment options available to us now, but we can improve on them. And, and, and participating in a clinical trial, if you've just been diagnosed with melanoma, doesn't mean you're going to have the effective therapy withheld. No, you're going to have a new treatment added to it. Right. right? I mean, like that, that's, that's, that's the huge point. It's like we're giving you standard care and we're doing something more to see if there's even a better chance that it has less you know, toxicity. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, that was a great summary. I want to use what you said at the end, just all over my social media handles, because I need people, I really just at the end of the day, want people to be desensitized a little bit to the scare with cancer, just realizing what's out there. Yep. To your point, you know, there's the first tissue agnostic. What does that mean? That means we found something that doesn't matter what tumor it yes. is, yes. if it has it, this drug works. I mean, that that is unheard of. And yes. track, still waiting to find one. But NTRK, right? So like, and that's where we're at. And like you said, PD-1, PDL one same thing. We know that that's a tool that a lot of things use. How do we make it more specific for tumor type? And yes. it's the sky's the limit. This has been so awesome. I'm so mm -hmm. grateful for you taking the time to be here. And I hope 
I, you know, they'll have to listen to you a couple of times. I talk fast and I, you're one of the few people that talks even faster. But <laughs> probably tenfold. But, um, but I really appreciate all the insight and I hope to have you back and thank you for everything you're doing for everyone, especially my wife, blonde, blue eyes, higher chance of melanoma uh, in that industry, just because, you know, it's something that we all fear, but have made huge gains on. Yeah, my pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation.